ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Max Headroom. This is my, my Max Headroom. And what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding epics ever produced in the history of te television. And there's more. Namely, my, my Max Headroom. 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 It'll be stupid and be a skeptic. Unconceivable, unbelievable. <laughs> Unidentified flying objects. I want to Welcome to Episode 3, Season 5 of the I Want to Believe Podcast. I'm Nomar Slevic. I'm Kyle Sawyer. At precisely 9.14 p.m. on November 22, 1987, Chicago area residents were the unwitting spectators of a mysterious television broadcast. But before we jump into the episode, I did want to give a reminder that all of our I Want to Believe social media and email are in the show notes. My brand new book, We Only Come Out at Night, is now available for purchase. This book is a collection of short horror stories and can be found online at slevicstore.company.site or just check the show notes for that link and much more. All right, let's talk about the mystery of the Max Headroom incident. Someone using sophisticated equipment managed to briefly and illegally override broadcast signals on WGN-TV and WTTW. Both incidents are under investigation. While viewers of Chicago's WGN-TV were watching the 9 o'clock news, all seemed normal as Dan Roan, a local sportscaster, was going over the highlights of the Bears' victory over the Detroit Lions. Without warning, the TV signal flickered in and out, and then televisions went dark. In WGN's control room, technicians looked on, confused about what was happening. It was from their studio, located at Bradley Place in the north of the city, that the network broadcasted its microwave transmissions to an antenna at the top of the 100-story John Hancock Tower, several miles away, and then out to tens of thousands of viewers. After a moment, the studio crew realized that their signal had been hijacked. Viewers then saw a suited figure fade in from the darkness. The stranger danced around while wearing a ghoulish rubbery mask with sunglasses and a frozen grin. Chris Niddle of Vice wrote, quote, Static hissed through the signal. Behind him, a slab of corrugated metal spun hypnotically. This was not part of the regularly scheduled broadcast. End quote. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. As suddenly as he had disappeared, Dan Roan was back on the screen. He sat at his desk just as before, but his mouth was crooked in a smirk, eyes wide conveying the confusion of everyone in the studio. Once he realized he was live on air again, he said, Oh, if you're wondering what's happened. <laughs> So am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. Hours after the broadcast intrusion, federal officials were called in to investigate one of the strangest crimes in television history. 
According to officials, there was no clear motive, and they were stumped on how such a signal intrusion could happen, given the technology available to consumers in 1987. Apparently somebody uh, with some microwave equipment was able to interfere with our signal going to the Hancock transmitter. Now this is not just anybody off the street. He has to have an electronic expertise of some level, right? Yes, he does. It takes very sophisticated equipment to, uh, to do this at a significant power level. So this isn't uh, something that just anyone would be able to, uh, to accomplish. And the mask the mysterious signal hijacker wore was that of Max Hedrum. Hedrum was at the peak of his popularity in pulp culture during that time and was the world's first computer-generated TV host. He got a start as a quick-witted VJ for a British music television show. He was also part of a popular ad campaign for New Coke and even got a late-night talk show on Cinemax. He was considered a cult personality in the U.S. at the time of the signal intrusion. The seemingly digitized effect of Max's perpetually skipping computerized face was hard to forget. Niddle wrote, quote, The result not of computers, but of painstaking makeup and prosthetics on top of the comedian Matt Frewer. And Headroom was made as a dark parody of real-life TV newscasters in a television landscape where news and entertainment were already bleeding into each other. Max Headroom was the cyberpunk on mainstream TV. End quote. Starting first on WGN-TV during a sportscast. 12 quarters finally did. Only moments after the intrusion at WGN, technicians at the studio suspected that the hijack was an inside job. They leapt from their chairs and began to scour the building for a broadcast assailant. Unfortunately for WGN, Mr. Hedrum was not there nor was he finished. Niddle wrote, quote, At 11.15 p.m., Channel 11, the PBS affiliate WTTW was airing an episode of Doctor Who called The Horror of Fang Rock. And this time, it wasn't 25 seconds long. It ran for almost a minute and a half. That's when a gargle of static cut in. Scan lines indicating the beginning of a VHS recording flashed across the screen. Unlike the previous 30-second hacking, this one had audio, just barely coherent amid the whirr of distortion. It lasted for 1 minute and 22 seconds, end quote. Here is the actual audio from that evening. You should have gotten with the old ones of your tribe, but it's the only way to learn. I'll get you a hot drink, Oh, I guess 
play a giant mask and please spread all of my greatest world newspaper nerds. <laughs> my brother is wearing the other one. I can tell a massive electric shock, he died instantly. The fake headroom's audio may be hard to make out. The following is a transcript of what is being said. Quote, that does it. He's a frickin' nerd. Yeah, I think I'm better than Chuck Swirsky, frickin' liberal. Oh Jesus, here we go. Yeah, catch the wave. Your love is fading. I still see the X. My files. Oh, I just made a giant masterpiece for the greatest world newspaper nerds. My brother is wearing the other one. It's dirty. I'm going to put my fine off. They're coming to get me. Bend over, bitch. Don't do it. No! End quote. For context on what we're seeing visibly, I'll explain. First, Chuck Swirsky is a former Chicago Bulls announcer and WGN Radio's go-to sportscaster. Second, there was a metal panel spinning behind the fake headroom and was made to look like a knockoff of headroom's computer-generated background. At one point, he's waving around a dildo and throws a can of Pepsi down when he said, catch the wave. He also hums the tune to a 60s cartoon by the name of Clutch Cargo. When he said, I still see the X, this is a reference to the title of the last episode of that cartoon. When he said, I just made a giant masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds, that's a reference to Chicago's television establishment as the call sign to WGN, which stands for World's Greatest Newspaper. It's a slogan from the early days of the Chicago Tribune newspaper, which owned the station during a period of time. Lastly, the camera cuts to headroom from a different angle. He's off screen, bent over, exposing his bare booty. When he says, they're coming to get me, a woman spanks him with a fly swatter. The video then fades out and back into Doctor Who. Niddle continued, quote, A spokesman for WTTW, which is located about two miles from the southeast of WGN, told the Tribune, For thousands of Chicago residents, it was already too late. It annoyed some viewers. No, I just thought it would be just a slight mess up, but that in the middle of the tapes, it's going to be... You're going to have to tape over it. Angered others. Uh, somebody wants to get attention, what do they do? They go break into a, uh, uh, a television broadcast. Just to get attention, like throwing a brick through your window, so to speak. Okay. It's, not too it's not too bright, really. Well, some thought it was a lot of fun. So what did you think about the whole thing? Very, very funny. The invention of the World Wide Web was just a few years away, but for a few moments that night, thousands of viewers simultaneously caught a glimpse of the kind of proto-troll, a hacker who had managed somehow to hijack Chicago's broadcast signals, not once, but twice. At both WGN and WTTW, phones began ringing off the hook from confused and sympathetic viewers. For the next few days, the tale of the hack went viral. Local newspapers and newscasts covered the incident with a mix of suspense and bemusement, end quote. 
There were many news reports aired about the incident. The following is one of those reports. Last night, someone broke into regular programming here on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. As Larry Roderick reports, the first interruption took place during last night's 9 o'clock news. McMahon Sports anchor Dan Rowan had just started his Sunday night Bears report when the screen suddenly went black, then came back on with a new unruly presence, a man wearing a Max Headroom mask. We had been taken over by a video pirate for a short time until technicians here changed microwave channels between the studio and the transmitter and knocked him off the air. But Channel 9 wasn't alone in its Max Headroom appearance. There was even a longer episode on Channel 11, public broadcasting. Doctor Who was knocked out by the Max lookalike, who pitched a soft drink, then performed a series of antics that station officials found less than humorous before the pirate himself pulled the plug. It may seem rather humorous, but there is more to it than that, for when this person is caught, he or she will face both civil and criminal penalties. Meanwhile, Channel 9 engineers say they have taken steps to prevent further appearances of the Mock Max. This is Larry Roderick, WGN News. Officials from the FCC, the agency responsible for regulating America's airwaves, pledged to track down the mysterious culprits and bring them to justice. Agents from the FBI's Chicago field office would soon join the investigation. An FCC spokesman told a reporter, It is very serious and uh, we would like to uh, inform anybody who's involved in this type of thing that it is serious and that we will take every step uh, that uh, we can to uh, find out who is doing it. And once we have uh, determined that, we will make sure that uh, the full extent of the law is uh, carried out. WTTW spokesman Anders Yoakum said, all in all, there are some who may view this as comical, but it is a serious matter. If a guy continues to involve himself, either sporadically or continuously, uh, it's very great that we will determine who it is. There's a maximum penalty of $100,000, uh, one year in jail or both. At the time of the two network intrusions, authorities considered it an almost impossibility that an individual or small group of people with limited technical education and limited means could pull off such a hack. While possible with smaller stations with lower power transmissions to intrude on two major television stations was thought to require intense schooling and equipment that was estimated to cost over $100,000. All early evidence points to someone with a broadcasting background. Someone who really knows the business and uh, microwave in general. But the person in the Max Headroom disguise may not know how sophisticated officials can be in tracing this sort of thing. It leaves an electronic signature. But there may have been an inkling that these types of intrusions were possible by the average public. On April 27, 1986, the relatively new cable station HBO was airing a movie called The Falcon and the Snowman. At around 32 minutes past midnight, the screen flickered into color bars. This message claiming to be from Captain Midnight appeared, protesting the new HBO price hikes. Quote, Good evening, HBO. From Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime, movie channel beware. Within a few days, the FCC investigators got him. It was a satellite technician named John McDougall in Florida. He did it because HBO's price hikes would hurt his side business which was selling satellite TV equipment. 
He pled guilty, paid a $5,000 fine, and served a year-long probation. Niddle wrote, quote, HBO executives refused to publicly discuss the incident, a protest of the network's recently announced price hike, and experts worried that the hack presaged a dark future for broadcasters, for the country's satellite infrastructure, and for the viewing public, end quote. Niddle added, quote, the following year, Congress passed 18 U.S.C. 1367, which made satellite jamming a felony. The law was put to the test after another incident a year later, some two months before the Max Hedrum intrusion. Playboy TV was hijacked with messages, telling the lads watching with their um, marital aids out to repent and find Jesus. The FBI identified the hacker as Thomas Haney, a technician employed by the Christian Broadcasting Network. Haney was caught and convicted and sentenced to probation. In regards to the headroom incident, a Dr. Michael Marcus, who was a bureau chief at the FCC's field operations area, wrote a report on the incident. According to Marcus, who currently runs a telecom consultation company, said that the headroom hacker was, quote, a bad guy, the one who got away. The head man in Chicago at the time asked me, what am I supposed to do? And I said, you have the video, go to the place where you think it was filmed. But they never found too much. I think the bad guy got close to a receiving end and just transmitted a signal that was received with a stronger strength than the more distant intended signal." End quote. Marcus has serious doubts that the hacker used sophisticated and expensive equipment, and that normal on-the-job knowledge would have sufficed to pull off the intrusion. He also stated, quote, I don't think it needed to be expensive. The gear might have cost around $10,000, but would have been available, used on the amateur radio market. There is surplus equipment sold with this capability. I don't think it needed but a few briefcases and a dish antenna. If they got close to the STL receiver antenna at the TV transmitter, then a direct TV-sized antenna might have been adequate." End quote. The FBI also carefully examined the video. Analysts enhanced frames from the broadcast, but the quality was too low, and a higher quality recording would be paramount for a better examination. Marcus thought that evidence of where the hackers had shot their video would fall to the videotape itself. It was the only thing that could provide the most clues to the identity of the culprits. This was in large part because it was the only evidence at all the investigators had to work with. Marcus said, quote, the background looked to be about eight feet wide, industrial type metal, maybe a roll down warehouse door. That would have already limited it to certain places in the city where the video could have been filmed. And one tip sounded particularly promising, one that pointed at a particular person, someone who worked for a company that had a warehouse-like space in the city, a place that might play host to the video shoot, end quote. Although they had a good tip, investigators did not have probable cause, nor a warrant, so they could not pursue it further. Investigators had to keep looking. Marcus said, quote, It had to be someone who knew the technology, maybe a broadcast techie, but there were other techies who could figure it out also, end quote. Even though the FCC knew the general location of the culprits, resources for the investigation were running too high. Marcus also said the FCC investigator in charge of the case was inexperienced and momentum on the investigation slowed to a crawl. Niddle wrote, quote, There were fears at the time about the harm a satellite jammer might do to infrastructure that costs hundreds of millions of dollars, but concerns about regular television signals were much lower, end quote. 
Marcus said that the headroom incident did not pose a danger to public safety or to the expensive equipment used at television studios. And with that, the FCC moved on to other, higher priority cases. In 2006, the footage was uploaded to YouTube by Rick Klein, the curator of the Museum of Classic Chicago Television, and in the wake of internet sleuths and the popularity of conspiracy theories, the headroom incident has reached new heights of interest. When people say they're nostalgic for classic television, they usually mean the shows. But for Rick Klein, it's the total viewing experience that gets him excited. He scours flea markets, garage sales, estate sales, people's basements, and the internet in search of old home videotapes. He then edits out all those between-show parts and posts them on his FuzzyMemories.tv, also known by its full name, the Museum of Classic Chicago Television. It should be preserved because I, I, I realize that WGN doesn't have a lot of these episodes, so really the only existing copies may be ones that people recorded at home. I don't leave anything uh, on, on no stone uh, left unturned. I, I pretty much put everything, even if it's extremely obscure, just because usually uh, a clip that I think uh, wouldn't be interesting to anyone else, someone finds it interesting and says, wow, I remember that. That, that really brought home a memory to me. Niddle wrote, quote, Since Klein uploaded the footage, the incident has been watched more than two million times. The matter of how it was done was relatively simple. Who did it was another matter. One theory that circulated online for years centers on a performance artist and a musician named Eric Fournier. Eric was the creator of the wonderfully surreal and creepy avant-garde YouTube series Shea St. John. Many theorists draw parallels between the erratic style of the Max Hedrum hacker and Eric's freakish video star. The legend is that Eric, who lived nearby Bloomington, Indiana at the time and played in a punk band called The Blood Farmers, simply wanted exposure for his band's music videos. At the last minute, he decided to ditch the idea of broadcasting one of their videos out of fear that they would be identified and reverted instead to his own spontaneous performance, end quote. A former band member of Eric's, Harry Bergen, denied this and said that Eric did not have video editing experience at the time and that the band never even thought about making any music videos. Another theory was proposed by a computer programmer from Chicago named Bowie J. Pogue. They said the intrusion was from the, quote, local hacking culture of the late 1980s and fostered by a loose group of hackers, end quote. Polk was only 13 at the time, but he tried to hang out with the group as much as possible. Niddle wrote, quote, at one party in 1987, Pogue remembers meeting a small, peculiar man he guesses was in his 30s. We'll call him Jay. Jay was socially uncomfortable and may have been autistic, Pogue said. He was looked after by his older brother Kay, who lived with his girlfriend in an apartment 10 miles away from downtown Chicago and strewn with computers and cables. Jay knew a great deal about not just the broadcast spectrum, but the electronics that underpinned that sort of stuff. He was a broadcast hacker. Around midday on November 22, 1987, Pogue was at a small gathering of geeks at the brothers' apartment, where Pogue said, There were three or four people standing around Jay. 
They were smiling about something that Jay was referring to, and I heard the word big. I didn't ask at the time what they were referring to. I stood with my back to the wall the whole time, terrified of being ridiculed or asked to leave. The group relocated to a nearby pizza hut. Pogue said, while there, I asked a few of them what they meant by big. Kay leaned forward and told me, just watch Channel 11 later tonight. End quote. So, 25 years later, Pogue decided to post his theory on Reddit, while concealing the brothers' identities and keeping the details somewhat vague. His posts spread like wildfire, and many wanted to get confirmation from the brothers. Pogue said he reached out to them via email and Facebook, but never heard back. Niddle wrote, quote, Pogue could offer no physical evidence, though he pointed to comments made by another Redditor who claimed to remember the brothers. After the broadcast was broken into, the commentator wrote, word was going around the D-dial scene about who did it. Fingers were being pointed at the guys living in the apartment. Of course, it was all deny, deny, deny. At my request, Pogue made one last attempt to summon the hacking duo via certified mail. He never heard back. End quote. Rick Klein thinks the perpetrators probably worked for or formally for WGN as the prank was designed against the network. It is thought that after a failed attempt to fully break into WGN's signal, the intruders took to WTTW. And there are the references to WGN with the mention of Chuck Swirsky and the reference to the Chicago Tribune and Clutch Cargo, which used to air on WGN. Klein opened an email tip line at maxtips at fuzzymemories.tv in the hopes that someone might come forward. Klein stated, quote, I honestly believe that this mystery can still be solved. I suspect more people didn't talk back then because maybe they were afraid for their own job or reputation in the competitive TV industry. For no one to spill the beans after all this time, it's surprising. End quote. Niddle contacted the Department of Justice, but they declined comment on the case. However, Niddle did find out that the hackers would be safe from charges due to a quote from the Justice Department's cybercrime manual, which states, quote, In the absence of a specific statute of limitations, the default federal limitations period of five years applies, end quote. There was no clear motive, no clear message, and 30 years on, no clear perpetrator. It was a hack of and for its time, done seemingly for the curiosity and the glory of simply doing it. Whatever their particular motive was, the Hedrum hackers' victory that day, and after all these years, may be its eerie persistence. Despite the analog origins, the footage still graces our screens. A quarter century later, and the ghostly image of a hacker interrupting normally scheduled programming for nothing, it seems, but a prank. I suppose at this point, if you've watched the footage, you can decide for yourself whether to laugh with the hackers, to be concerned, as federal authorities were at one point, or to be enthralled by the analog legacy. For Kyle and I, the Max Hedrum incident remains a fascinating piece of pop culture mystery. And that's all we got for episode three. You think there's anything to add, buddy? I think that's about it. That was cutting edge hackery at that point in time. Yeah. You know, pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, it's still still being a mystery is is 
really interesting to me. It sounded like they were kind of getting close with those hacking brothers, you know, with Jay and those guys. Yeah. So I don't know if it if it could have been them. I do think that that might be the as close to an answer as anyone's gonna get. But but with the internet sleuths of Reddit and all over the web, maybe this mystery could get solved after some time. Who knows? Who knows? All right, buddy. See you on the next one. See you on the next. Hello. I'm now Mars. God. I don't know what this first sentence. And the reference to the Chicago Tribune. Is it Chicago weird there? I didn't say quote, did I? WTTW spokesman Anders Yoakum said, oh, I guess that was okay. <laughs> the seemingly computer. Hmm. I'm going to say computerized there, I think. Okay. The seemingly computerized effect of Max's perpetually skipping computer... Oh. <laughs> Damn it. All right. <laughs> Shit. While viewers of Chicago's WGN-TV were... Play audios. Local newspapers and newscasts. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm really killing it with this. I think we 